to the Hermeneutics Podcast, the program dedicated to the art and science of biblical interpretation. I'm your host, Naomi O'Brien, and today in the studio we have an extra guest host named Martin Hjelvik. Martin, introduce yourself. Yes, I'm uh, Martin. I'm a pastor here in Norway, and has uh, I've been that for six, seven years, and uh, we got to know each other four or five years ago. So, yeah. yep, that's in short. And for those that, since it's not being recorded video... Uh, you are wearing a New York Yankees hat, unfortunately. I am. I didn't know. <laughs> I was just on New York. <laughs> and I am sporting the uh, Cleveland Indians hat from the state of Ohio. I don't know if that's safe to say anymore because now their logo and uh, mascot is being disowned. So um, Cleveland baseball team, we'll call them that. And uh, But the, the guest of honor to today is Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. He is the currently the, the research professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology and the director of the Center of Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He holds uh, a master's and doctorate in social and economic sciences from Vienna University and uh, an MDiv from Columbia Biblical Seminary and Graduate School of Missions in Columbia, South Carolina. And finally, a PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. I believe that makes you the most uh, illustrious person I've ever had on my podcast. Uh, so, Dr. Uh, Kostenberger, if you will, please uh, fill us in the details that we're missing, maybe your, your life and ministry. Sounds great. Uh, great to be with you today. And I'm not wearing any hats, by the way. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm strictly neutral for purposes of this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I'm a native. Uh, I'm a native Austrian. I uh, was born and grew up in Vienna. Um, grew up speaking German, and um, I would say I, I grew up in a in a nominal Roman Catholic family. Uh, Austria is uh, at least used to be predominantly Roman Catholic. Um, when I went to high school and college, I was essentially non-religious and just looking for meaning in, you know, various uh, uh, pursuits. Uh, went to the theater a lot. I, I really liked uh, existentialism for a while. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, all of a sudden, uh, I, I was exposed to God's word through uh, while I was traveling uh, on a train and somebody shared uh, you know, their faith with me. And I, I, I started getting hooked on the Bible and I, I bought a Bible. It was actually in English. So I was not as familiar with the Bible in English. So there was a freshness to it. And I read through the whole thing uh, in a you know couple months. And uh, I, I just didn't let me go. It was some sort of a, uh, um, you know, very radical conversion uh, you know, not quite like Paul and Damascus Road, but but kind of like that. And I, I, I sensed the call to uh, not just uh, trusting Christ for salvation, but also a call to the ministry. And and so it took me a couple of years to, to liquidate some assets, but eventually uh, ended up uh, at some of the schools you mentioned uh, in seminary. And then uh, I've now taught the New Testament at uh, two or three different schools for the past uh, 25 years. Okay, and the uh, reason that we're having you on the podcast today is to talk about the second edition of your book, Invitation to Biblical Interpretation, Exploring the Hermeneutical Triad of History, Literature, and Theology. Uh, I went through this book personally with um, <clears throat> a friend of yours and mine, uh, Dr. Richard Allen Furr, and uh, it was a big help to me. And when you came out with the second edition, I wanted to make sure that the audience and uh, those that listen to this podcast are uh, are, are 
informed about it and, and would buy it and, and get into it. So uh, with, just tell us a little bit about the book. What's the main uh, uh, emphasis of it? What are, what are you trying to, to, to say? Absolutely. You know, ever since my seminary days, I've been very committed to uh, myself, uh, study the Bible, if possible, in the original languages and to the extent, you know, possible, uh, and to use proper principles of, of interpretation uh, as some sort of a, um, a lifetime commitment, as Paul writes to Timothy and in 2 Timothy, be diligent uh, and show yourself approved by God. Uh, handling accurately uh, God's word of truth, and then you won't need to be ashamed on Judgment Day. And so uh, that's become kind of a life verse for me, uh, because I do think that uh, not only will we have uh, to give an account to God for, you know, what we've done with our lives, uh, especially those of us who are teachers will also need to give an added account to God for, uh, you know, the way we taught and uh, uh, especially how we handle the scripture. Uh, so this is uh, definitely a sacred and a solemn task that we, sh that we should not take lightly. And uh, so we should make every effort to to be responsible and and to to educate ourselves. You know, what it takes to, to uh, interpret scripture accurately, uh, which is where that book comes in. As you mentioned, the... Uh, first edition that came out uh, about 10 years ago so it was definitely time for an update uh, you know it's a standard text uh, uh, classroom text we wanted to make sure we we keep it current uh, it's part of a series uh, called invitation to theological studies which also covers other disciplines such as ethics church history and other biblical and theological disciplines and the core model that this book employs, as you know, is that uh, is what what I call the hermeneutical triad, which is studying studying scripture through the, you might say, the trifocal lens of history, literature, and theology. If I could uh, briefly explain, uh, when we interpret a given passage of scripture, we find ourselves needing to do some historical work to understand the original setting in which the book was placed. For example. Uh, first century Corinth when interpreting uh, First Corinthians. Also, we need to understand the storyline, the plot, uh, if we're dealing with a narrative, um, or we need to trace the flow of an argument when dealing with a letter such as the book of Romans. So that's literature. And then finally, the Bible, of course, is a spiritual book uh, that contains divine revelation. So we need to ponder uh, very carefully the theological message of that particular passage. So history, uh, literature, and theology. Uh, of course, that'll look different in different genres, and we can explore that uh, some more if you like. Uh, but in the book, after, after we introduce our readers to the hermeneutical triad, we first cover history, uh, which includes biblical chronology, matters of culture and history, after that, we have a couple of chapters on the Old and New Testament canon, uh, which sets kind of a very broad canvas, a framework for interpretation, since good hermeneutics interprets the parts in light of a whole. And then we settle down and look at interpreting the different genres of scripture, one genre at a time. We start with the Old Testament historical narrative, and then move on to wisdom, prophecy, New Testament narrative, uh, epistle, and finally apocalyptic. And then at the end of the book, we have a chapter on how to teach or preach. 
responsibly and a very hefty section on application as well. Mm. So this is the second edition that is coming out, I believe, on eight, in April. Um, mm -hmm. So those that have gone through the first edition, like myself, what, what can we expect in the second edition that would be different, uh, updated? I know in the introduction of the first book, you, you, you welcome feedback. And you, you even provide your email in there and, and asked for anybody to send your feedback and, and uh, that if there was going to be a second edition, you would take those into consideration. So what can we expect from the second edition that we didn't see in the first? Yes, you know, for an author, it's always very uh, gratifying if there's even a need and an interest in the second edition, because it tells you that there's sufficient interest in the first edition. At the same time, like you said, uh, you get feedback from other people who've used the text and, and you use it yourself in your own teaching and so invariably there's things that you know you feel like you could do better next time around and so this is a great chance to to uh to improve the book uh hopefully with an eye you know to the students who who uh, who take a, a class uh with that book as a textbook so uh for the second edition uh, one of the things we did we added a brand new chapter on the old testament canon written by a close friend of mine, one of the world's leading experts on the canon, Dr. Gregory Goswell, who teaches at Christ College in Sydney, Australia. So that gives very much of an, you know, added international dimension to the book. Um, and uh, I felt in the first edition, the chapter was a little more thematic in nature. Uh, so we, we kept some of the contents and put them in the later chapter on biblical theology. But that chapter is brand new, and it, it deals with things like how does book order affect how we interpret Scripture? You know, uh, you know, is there any significance to the fact that you know Acts is is uh, followed by Romans in our English Bibles, or you know, things of that nature? Uh, so that's that's a, a brand new chapter. I also uh, for the chapter on history. Uh, consulted extensively with leading experts on biblical chronology. Uh, Andrew Steinman teaches in Chicago and Roger Young, uh, who are one of the foremost authorities. And so I updated all the dates for the uh, biblical chronology in, in chapter two uh, to the latest, uh, you know, and best scholarship. So, for example, uh, the, the death of King Herod. Uh, is uh, typically placed at 4 BC. And you know why that's important, because uh, the, the birth of Christ uh, took place just uh, shortly before that. And so people then typically would place the birth of Christ in either 5 or 6 BC, uh, which of course is confusing in and of itself, because you, know, you would think that he would be born in, say, 1 AD or in the year zero. Uh, but then again, there was no year zero, right? He went straight from 1 BC to 1 AD. But uh, in any case, so uh, the latest scholarship has suggested that that date of 4 BC is likely wrong, or it, at least is not the most plausible date. Um, and uh, uh, Andrew Steinman has written several very compelling, meticulously researched articles on this. So we actually changed the date from the first to the second edition from 4 to 1 BC, which would mean that Jesus was likely born a little closer to maybe 2 BC. Uh, a little closer, at least, you know, so the, the people who uh, who did our our uh, chronology and started, uh, you know, with 1 AD didn't get it wrong quite as badly 
as under the old date for uh, King Herod. So that's just one among several examples, maybe the most important one, where we, we took another look, you know, and made sure that we updated uh, the information. So uh, the uh, students using that book have the, the best uh, research available. Um, also, I consulted extensively with one of the foremost authorities in biblical preaching, uh, a man named Abraham Coravilla, who teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary and who also is a, uh, a dermatologist, a brilliant man. Uh, I love his, his work. He's written several very important uh, books on preaching. And so he very carefully went uh, through the chapter on preaching and made suggestions for improvement. Uh, since, uh, you know, I'm not primarily a preacher, I'm, I'm a seminary professor, I, I preach sometime, but but I just wanted to make sure that that chapter in the book is um, is prepared with, with input from, from a leading authority on preaching. Uh, speaking of that last chapter, I also freshly wrote... Uh, the second half of the chapter is on application. And so it occurred to me that really what, what we need to do is look at application genre by genre, because you apply a historical narrative differently than you might a passage from the wisdom literature or, or a prophetic passage. And so uh, I wrote, uh, you know, 30 pages on application, uh, dividing up the task of application genre by genre. I'm very excited about that. I, I really don't know any book or very, very few that, that, that give as detailed a coverage to application. As you know, that's really where the rubber meets the road at the end of the day. And so I just wanted to make sure that uh, we finish strong in the book and, and we equip people, not just, you know, with more head knowledge, but also we equip them, you know, uh, how to apply scripture uh, faithfully and responsibly. Okay, and then um, in, in the book, let's get back to the, the hermeneutical triad uh, specifically. Mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the hermeneutical triad, you, you mentioned you have history, uh, literature, uh, and theology, and you break down literature between canon, genre, and language. Uh, so just for a practical sense, uh, could you mm -hmm. take us through an example of yeah. how we go, we walk through the hermeneutical triad in an interpretive process, whether you want to pick the Old Testament or New Testament, whatever text you feel uh, comfortable with. Yeah, in my classes, I, um, I do that very thing. So that's a great question for people to see how that works out in practice. And the passage that I often use is uh, the Book of Esther. Uh, Book of Esther is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. It is such a great story. It's full of, uh, you know, plot twists and turns and in, intrigue and, and ironic reversals. So uh, it's, it's a great passage also to illustrate the uh, hermeneutical triad, because the first thing that you want to do there, uh, and I'm going to turn to it here in my Bible as well, is to uh, look how the, how the book starts out. And it starts out immediately with a historical reference. It says, in the days of Ahasuerus, the, the one who reigned from India to Ethiopia, uh, over 127 provinces and so forth and so on. So the first uh, few verses right there in our biblical passage uh, gives us some historical backdrop, gives us the setting. So we learn that this is a, a group of Jewish people, uh, including Esther, that are actually not in the promised land, in the Holy Land. They're actually in Persia. Uh, because that was after the exile, 
And I think that becomes very important for interpretation because we, we, we see that uh, this is part of the, the Jewish population that was displaced from the Holy Land and had yet to return. So they're still in this, uh, in, 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 in exile. Um, and uh, there's, there's several other fascinating historical tidbits. We have extra biblical historians that talk about uh, this particular king, a uh, Greek historian named Herodotus, I think, is one of them. And, and, and so we learn more about uh, that king. It's actually interesting that uh, in many ways the, the extra-biblical record confirms what the Bible says, what the book of Esther says about that king being somewhat temperamental and somewhat, uh, you know, irascible the way we see it in, in the book. Um, there's also some historical references later on uh, in in Esther, uh, for example, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, After these, king, uh, these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Now, I admit that the first time around, you know, I drew a complete blank on that. Uh, but, you know, when you, when you use a good study Bible or you look at a commentary, you're told that this is someone whom Saul, King Saul, in 1 Samuel was told to annihilate as a, as, a, as a people group because of the idolatry and because of the, you know, disobedience to the Lord. And so uh, in some ways you see that God's people are now reaping what they sowed in terms of uh, disobedience to God's word centuries earlier. And so I think the author of Esther very deliberately mentions this uh, background of Haman to kind of cue the reader in that there's some sort of prehistory uh, uh, that connects this book with earlier books in the Old Testament, in this case, First uh, Samuel. So uh, the first of the three uh, aspects of the Hermetical Triad, then uh, history would both be extra biblical history and especially also biblical history uh, that connects uh, you with, say, the exile, or in this case, also with, with Saul uh, and his failure to, to deal with this uh, threat. Uh, secondly, literature. And literature, I could talk, you know, literally for uh, an hour, hour and a half about all the literary devices that are used in Esther. Uh, Esther is essentially a story of banquets. You know, it starts with a banquet or, you know, a story of feasts, more broadly speaking. The whole book was likely written to give the background to the Old Testament festival of Purim, um, which uh, was celebrated uh, in honor of the deliverance of the Jews from, from the threat uh, posed by Haman. Uh, and in between, as you know, the the, the, the plot hinges on those two banquets that Esther gives for uh, the king and uh, where she reveals to him the threat that, that uh, the, the plot uh, by wicked Haman. Um, and so you have in the book, you know, everything that you might find, say, in a classic James Bond movie, right? You have the, the, the good guy, Mordecai, you have the heroine, Esther, you have uh, the bad guy, Haman, you know, in the end, uh, of course, you have the good guys win, right? The villain is destroyed and, and everybody lived happily ever after. So you have uh, just classic storytelling uh, techniques at work. You also have uh, divine coincidences, which gets me into the next and final section of the Hermetical Triad, uh, theology. Now, fascinating, uh, God is never explicitly mentioned in the book. Uh, 
which led some Jewish groups, such as the people at Qumran, to actually reject the book uh, or not feature it in their library of, of biblical books because, you know, they were just not sure about a book that never mentions the, the name of Yahweh, uh, God in the book. Uh, but I think what they, those people miss is that the, uh, the mention of God is a little more subtle in Esther. Uh, you see his divine hand of providence that operates behind the scenes. And so there's, there's many of those uh, divinely designed coincidences, one being that, you know, uh, at nighttime, the king before that the, the decisive banquet uh, couldn't go to sleep. And so he had somebody read to him from, from those chronicles. And there Mordecai was mentioned who had uh, done a good deed and who had uh, gone unrewarded up to that point. And so then that, is basically the pivot and the whole story turns on that and then the king commissions Haman to honor Mordecai and then in the end Haman is uh, is, is uh, hanged on his own gallows when his duplicity is revealed to the king and so uh, uh, there's even more interesting salvation historical connections um, such as that Esther is in some ways linked uh, as a deliverer of God's people with other previous deliverers, such as Moses. There's also some links with Joseph. Uh, and so you see those inner biblical connections that are very fascinating. And uh, of course, I have uh, all of that written up in the book as well. If anybody's listening and they want to get, you know, even more details, uh, but that would be one example of how, uh, if you look at, at a given passage, in this case, in Old Testament historical narrative, uh, from the vantage point of history, literature, in theology, you cover all your bases, and you end up with a very well-rounded uh, interpretation of that book. Hmm. Uh, I have a question about um, <clears throat> the literature of the Old Testament and maybe New Testament as well, but how do you determine uh, the genre of the books? Are there any books that you think um, it is difficult to determine uh, which genre it belongs to? Or is it because I have been... Um, in a, uh, taking a theology degree here in Norway. And we are mm -hmm. very much influenced by the historical critical method, and uh, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to the Old Testament. So books like Job and Jonah and um, yeah, most books are uh, seen in a different way than what I see from evangelical American scholarship. Um, so do you have any, uh, any um, Thoughts on that? Is there is there difficulty in determining the genre of some of the Old Testament books? Yeah. You know, you're asking a great question for several reasons. I mean, number one, as you mentioned, historical criticism uh, is is just in general skeptical often toward uh, the the historical reliability of those books, and so sometimes they they find a, a what they call a life setting of the books, like of the Psalms, for example, that is very speculative and, and actually contradicts the, the, the life setting that's given in Scripture itself. So uh, clearly scholars don't necessarily agree, and so there's a spectrum from you know, liberal to conservative based on presuppositions, just, you know, in terms of the nature of Scripture, is it inspired, is it inerrant, and so forth. Uh, but it's also an important question because genre really is key. And so you want to ask that question early in interpretation, because depending on what you tentatively uh, identify a given passage, what genre it falls into, it'll affect some interpretive, you know, decisions you make 
later on. Uh, and so when it comes to the Old Testament, and I would say uh, I'm primarily a New Testament scholar, so I'm definitely wanting to give credit where credit is due. And in this case, uh, Richard Patterson, my co-author who wrote the Old Testament chapters, he's actually a, a master in not just identifying the genre broadly speaking, but then also subgenres. you know, because it's one thing to say, well, this is prophecy. Well, this is very broad. There's going to be, uh, you know, several different, sub-genres there you may have a judgment oracle you know or you may have a uh, you know a woe oracle or 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 some other um you know sub form of of um, uh, genre apocalyptic some people would say that apocalyptic is really a subgenre of old testament prophecy uh, so uh, what you do is essentially you um you develop certain uh, style characteristics, you know, that 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 are uh, typically found in a given type of writing, um, and then uh, you would allow for a certain degree of variation within that. I'm thinking of parables, for example. You know, uh, parables typically I would identify as true to life, but still fictional stories that are invented to make a given spiritual to, to illustrate a given spiritual lesson um, but specifically they can take on as you know either the form of a story parable like the prodigal son in luke chapter 15 or it can be just an extended simile you know the kingdom of god is like a, a precious pearl uh, and we might not think that a, a, of as a full-fledged parable but it still falls roughly within that same category where you have a spiritual truth being illustrated so you do want to tentatively define define the um, the genre based on 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 general characteristics but then be open to have variation and uh, as i mentioned the bulk of our book i think you know there's i think 15 chapters and probably 10 of the 15 are devoted to just uh defining the genre and uh and even the subgenre, and especially in the Old Testament, uh, I think Dick Patterson, my co-author, uh, did a great job on on giving you all the options. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Dr. Kossenberger once again for joining me on the podcast. His book, Invitation to Biblical Interpretation, the second edition, dropped this week. So you can find that online, I'm sure, from Kriegel, from Amazon, and a variety of other places. Join us next time for the conclusion of our conversation with Dr. Andreas Kossenberger right here on the Hermeneutics Podcast. Hermeneutics Podcast.